Here's the thing though. Welcome to another episode of our podcast, Use the Thing Bo. My name is Saliha and I am your host for today. And I'm here with my producer slash editor, Mitch Price. Howdy. Before we begin, we'd like to acknowledge the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation, who are the traditional owners of the land that we are recording on today. We'd like to pay our respects to all First Nations people, past, present and future, and acknowledge that we're recording on stolen land and that sovereignty was never ceded. So Mitch, how are you? How's it going? What have you been up to? Um, I'm good. I feel like my fortnight has been relatively uneventful. Just been cruising, just been doing the usual commitments and, and whatnot. So nothing too interesting to report there. I hope you've had a more interesting fortnight. I feel like I have. I've yeah? had like an interesting fortnight. It's been exhausting, but I actually like socialized over the weekend, which is New for me because I have been a complete hermit the last few weeks and I realized on Saturday that I hadn't left my house in like seven days or something and I was like, oh my God, this is not good. Like I hadn't even left to like grocery shop, you know, like I just don't leave my house. (laughs) And I was like, wow, I need to interact with another human being because I'm slowly losing my mind. So I did that and it was really, really nice to see people and to be out and about. And I have finally gotten through my reading slump. I'm currently reading It Ends With Us and I'm actually, I feel like I'm so into it. Like it reads a little bit like a Wattpad novel, but in all the best ways, like all the things that I loved about teenage Wattpad novels. For the first time in a very long time, I was up last night reading when I should have been asleep and trust, nothing tempts me to stay up. Like I love sleep. I value my sleep so much. All I do is sleep. So if I was like staying up to read something, I am well and truly like out of my slump. Yeah, that's like the Felt so good. the best feeling. I yeah. feel like I need to find a book where I'm just completely addicted. It's been a while. Yeah, and I'm finally feeling like that. So I love this for me. I've also just got a. I've bought so many books in the last like couple of months that I've not read. So I'm hoping this will get me through and I'll actually read them all. So yeah, like it's good, but I'm also like super tired and like exhausted because I wasn't expecting socializing to take such a toll. So I'm kind of just tired, and it's Monday, but I feel like it's Thursday. And I need to get through like one more day and then my week's over, but I actually need to get through four more days. So I'm just like struggling, but I'm okay. I'm good. I'm good and struggling. I'm so happy to hear that. <laughs> also, just a quick note, it is pouring outside. It is absolutely pissing down. You guys have probably heard that Sydney is facing some catastrophic flooding and so has Northern New South Wales and Queensland. It has rained nonstop for like two weeks and at times it gets really loud in here. So it may bleed through and you may hear some rain in the background. I feel like we say this every time and when I'm editing it, I just can't really notice it. So well, last it's time, fine. last time we were recording, a little fun fact for you guys, we actually had to stop for three hours because the grasshoppers were so oh, loud. Oh, yeah, those were noisy. They were so loud that you could full on hear them in the podcast, and we were just like, okay, like this, this was cute. Now it's not cute. Like we're we going to send stop. down like a noise complaint. The, <laughs> the local cops came and told them off. The grasshoppers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you may hear the rain. You may not. Either way, we're just not going to, we're not going to worry about it. We're just going to record. So, I'm still not over that pun. (laughs) That was one of my finer works, I think. (laughs) 
Okay, let's get into some follow-up for today. I got some really, really great follow-up. So last episode, we talked about like the media propaganda around refugees and just how fucked everything is. And I mentioned two men that are that were imprisoned in the Park Hotel in Melbourne, Mehdi Ali and Adnan Chapani. And I talked a lot about like the traumas that they talked to me about when I interviewed them for a story. Well, last weekend, they were freed. Just like out of nowhere. I just was so shocked to see the news, but so happy. So they've uh, touched down in Chicago, the US. They're being resettled there. Not being resettled in Australia because our government isn't going to give us that. It's really great news. It feels so good. I feel so happy for them. Just like having talked to them, I think really like makes me so relieved for them because just like their situation was impossible. And I don't know how they stayed as strong as they did because I couldn't. It was really harrowing. It's kind of bittersweet news, I feel, because on the one hand, I'm like, fuck yeah, like you deserve this. I'm so happy for you. And on the other hand, I'm like, oh God, like none of us really have a connection. Like I feel like the other refugees trapped in that hotel aren't as well known in the media. Like we knew Mehdi and Adnan. That's probably part of the reason that they were freed was because they got that like traction. They got that media attention and they were like talking about things. But I just like really feel quite scared for the other roughly 30 refugees in that building who don't have like the social media presence. So it's like, it's scary for them, I guess, because I just like the silence will be deafening, you know? I hope that we kind of get to the bottom of that and free all the refugees. I don't know why they couldn't just free everyone. Yeah, exactly. Like It's, it's like, definitely so odd that it was just two people. Definitely but- a bit of sweet, you know, fantastic news, especially- yeah happening so soon after the pod some 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 happy news that we can report yeah i feel like some of our follow-ups can be real downers yeah so this is good news obviously but it's just so sad that other people aren't so lucky and to call them lucky is just seems ridiculous in the first place it also just like shouldn't have taken this much to free these two people and that also makes me sad because it's like how much advocacy and like media attention was there just to free two people and there's still 30 like nameless people that the average person doesn't know in these buildings. But you know what? I feel like these two being freed is renewed hope. I think we're allowed to have a bit of renewed hope that like clearly all the talking about it, all the attention got us somewhere. So that's good news. And I'm so, so happy for them and they deserve it. Anyway, let's introduce today's topic. So as I'm sure all of you are aware, Russia invaded Ukraine in the last week or so. And no, this is not an episode explaining the Russia-Ukraine conflict. Because I am, I don't think either of us are particularly equipped to, to have start discussing geopolitics. No. Uh, yeah. <laughs> no. As always, this is an, I won't even say analysis, more like a conversation or a discussion around the media approach to Ukraine and Russia because we are media students and that is what we love. So there's a few things I want to talk about, which we'll get into today. But the main, I feel, theme of this episode is like racist double standards or like racial double standards and the non-racializing of white people. And there's just like so many examples. I'm sure you've come across a lot of them already. And I feel like a lot of you kind of want to have this discussion, which is part of the reason I wanted to talk to you about this today because they're just like, it's everywhere. Like it's just everywhere. So let's get into it. I think when I say racist double standards around Ukraine and everywhere else, the immediate thought that comes to most people's minds would be the 
racist media coverage that we've been seeing. I'm sure you've all seen it. Majority from America and like neighboring European countries around Ukraine. But there have been some real fucking doozies that have come out of like these news reports. It's actually like I I want to say shocking, but it's not shocking. The shocking thing isn't that it exists. The shocking thing is how much people don't care about being seen as racist. <laughs> like y'all are just not even playing anymore. Nobody is even pretending. Let me just let me just read some to you. Should I just read some really fucked up things that like news reporters, anchors, and journalists have um, said? I don't really want to say yes, but it has to be done. <laughs> Here's one. This is from Charlie De Agata, CBS. This isn't Iraq or Afghanistan. This is a relatively civilized, relatively European city. Also, can I just say, what does relatively European <laughs> even mean? Like, it's either European or it's not. <laughs> yeah. Relatively European. Proximity to whiteness. I was going to say, they just wanted to say white without saying white. He was like, oh, saying white is probably a bit too on the nose. So I'll just say they're relatively European. Yeah. <laughs> which is already bizarre. Already very strange. Yeah. Then there was Daniel Hannon, who said for the Daily Telegraph, they seem so like us. That is what makes it so shocking. Ukraine is a European country. It's people watch Netflix and have Instagram accounts, vote in free elections and read uncensored newspapers. War is no longer something visited upon impoverished and remote populations. It can happen to anyone. To me, that was the worst quote. Yeah, wow. That was actually worse than like the other ones. And there are bad ones. There's this one from some guy on a Spanish TV news channel that said... These aren't like the other children that we've become accustomed to seeing suffer on TV. These children are blonde with blue eyes. So this is very important. Somehow the previous quote was worse. I just, that, oh my, Daniel, I'm coming for you. If I ever see that man, it's on site. I'll put a link to a Twitter thread of a lot of videos and screenshots of various articles and live news reports with similar arguments of like, oh no, you don't understand. These are white people. White people don't get hurt. We don't bomb those kinds of people. They don't experience war or violence or suffering. If they do, we have to alleviate it because we can't let white people suffer like we let everybody else yeah, suffer. Yeah, it becomes, you know, completely unimaginable human rights abuses because this stuff isn't meant to happen to to people that look a certain way. But then if it's, you know, a third world country, it just is like, oh, you know, what's new? It's so shocking as well because do Americans have no concept of the fact that they're the ones, like, bombing the Middle East? That's what blows my mind is they're all, like, so shocked by what happened in Ukraine and they're so angry at Russia for bombing something. They're like, wow, you're so violent. I'm like, you, you know that you that's what your country is doing, right? Like, I mean, I'm glad that they're anti-Russia, but like, do you not know that Afghanistan isn't bombing itself? Like Iraq isn't bombing itself. Lebanon is not bombing itself. This is your country. This is the issue with like the way Westerners talk about the perpetual war of the Middle East. They talk about it like this mystified, distant power and there's no aggressor and victim there's no like who is bombing who it's just the war in the middle east there's no like size there's no understanding of like powers and it's just like literally within the week of russia invading ukraine like america bombed several countries they just have no clue they have no concept it's not even shocking from the level of like just how like blatantly white supremacist this commentary is but just also how like ignorant it is like of their own politics of their own geopolitics it's also so strange uh i mean just to continue on that point like that first quote like this isn't uh, iraq this isn't afghanistan why not like why isn't it like those 
<laughs> yeah, like, what, this what's seems the like a, a sort of a similar strife. You know, it's a, a similarly imperialistic attack, but they just can't conceive because this time it's not necessarily America being the imperialist power because that is just like logical and makes sense, and people don't really see that as an aberration. Well, they don't think of America as at war, if no. that makes sense. Like, they don't think of what America is doing as war. They see it as, like, national security. They think they're on the defense. And when they do bomb other countries, which I don't even think they know they're bombing other countries, but when they do even know, like, it doesn't come from an understanding of being an aggressor, of being imperialistic, of, like, hurting civilians. Well, it's literally peacekeeping. Yeah, they literally think they're peacekeeping And I know you guys all know that these are problematic and that these are racist and we don't have to tell you. But the reason that we're bringing it up is because I think the discourse, obvious as it is, around these racist reporting has actually really opened up a much deeper conversation on racist double standards in the media, which we are going to get to because I have a really good article that I want to talk about later in the episode. But I want to explore this idea of the Ukraine-Russia conflict as... A vehicle for more reflective conversations, I think, in the media now, especially in Australian media. I think it's, in a way, like, given opportunities for some conversations that we've been trying to have for a long time that people just haven't really been interested in. Even now, on a much lower level, we can see it in our own government's kind of response to this situation. So after Russia invaded Ukraine... Um, Scott Morrison said that we have plenty of room for Ukrainian refugees and that he would increase our intake just like he did for Afghan refugees when the Taliban took over Afghanistan, which like was immediately criticized because the government didn't increase its refugee intake after the Taliban took over Afghanistan. Like this was actually a huge problem. Like lots of people reported on the fact that our government refused to help even our own workers. Like there were people in Afghanistan who like worked for the Australian embassy and like were translators for us that were abandoned there and not saved. Like this is... Complete, like it's just it's a misrepresentation like not very long ago like, this was big news like literally a couple of months ago <laughs> yeah so i mean first it's like misinformation and then secondly like didn't he listen to our last episode <laughs> like clear <laughs> like is this not just so nonsensical and hypocritical yeah well you know it's bad when even the australian christian lobby like of all people criticized scott morrison for saying that visa applications from ukrainian people Uh, quote, at the top of the pile, end quote, asking, you know, what message do they send to people that are fleeing the horrors of the Taliban? Like, that they're not priorities, they never have been priorities, but Ukrainians are at the top of the pile. I mean, even the language of pile, like, visa, there's just a pile of visa applications, they're just at the top of the pile. Like, even that is just such bad imagery because it just reduces, like, people's pleas to leave, like, persecution as, like, just a bunch of papers on a desk. I don't know, just already problematic in so many ways. But again, really interesting because even our own government is like suddenly pretending to care about refugees when we know, as per our last episode, that they don't. And not just that they don't, but that they refuse to like let more refugees in. Our refugee intake is very low at the moment and our government is fucking evil. And they have literally 30 people locked up in Park Hotel in Melbourne right now. And if we really have so much room for refugees, why don't we just free them? Like, why are they locked up in a hotel? Why do we have people in detention if we have, like, so much room? And we do have room. We do. It's just our government only has room for Ukrainian refugees. 
this may seem like a little bit of a tangent, but it's just really coming to mind. And I, I think this just really is a, such a fascinating example. Back when we did our episode on wholesome dystopia and we went through uh, this idea of the propaganda model from like Noam Chomsky and I think Eric Herman. And the last thing of like this filter, like this main force that drives the way coverage in the news sort of operates is this idea of the, the big other. So it's essentially what is the big enemy of the time. And I think this is interesting because- the discourse of like refugee intake seems to really reflect that. And it's something I've been really conscious of recently. So in the time that like these writers were developing these ideas, it was communism, the spread of communism, you know, after the second world war, but then like after nine 11, the big other that dominates. Yeah. And it's like Islamophobia very seriously. And now we've seen like this, uh, anti-Chinese stance yes. that just seems to permeate like every, like, like once you acknowledge, like there's a central theme throughout the years that sort of like every, news articles seems to be centered around this uh, omnipresent fear. You know, I feel like recently it's been China and now like this- Now it's Russia. Now it's like this this, this Russian, and specifically it's like Putin. It's like a, a simplification. I mean, I don't want to get into geopolitics because I just embarrass myself, but it's like, it's always this simplification of such politics to this individual, like almost like a Trump as well. Yeah, exactly. You know? I was just going to say that actually. It's like where you see so much discourse, which is just about like, um, emasculating this figure, you know, because, oh, this is just because it's a power play by Putin. Well, perhaps, and Chomsky has, has said these things, so I'm just going to trust him for better or for worse. But, you know, there's actually a larger sort of transnational imperialist politics that are, are in play that have been because of decades of tension. And it's not just like a Putin that is well, orchestrating this attack. A really similar example of that, actually, which is quite relevant to what we're about to get to, is the way our news media frames Israel and Palestine. And Palestine is reduced to just Hamas. That is what Palestine is. That is the representation of all Palestinian civilians is like one organization. And that's how they have all their Palestinian criticism. Anytime anyone ever tries to oppose the displacement of Palestinians or like Israel bombing Palestine, people are like, okay, well, what about this terrorist organization that apparently solely represents every single person and policy and politic in this country? Like, it's exactly the same. It's just the big other. Like, we can bomb children in Palestine because we're fighting the big other. We can bomb children in Iraq because we're fighting you know terrorism it's just constant it's just constant yeah it's like when I think of Ukraine my immediate thought and maybe I'm wrong but it's like I don't think of them as immediately westernized like a global player the same way that like the United States or Australia or England is for example so an attack between these two countries which have been the consequence of you know ongoing tensions for for decades doesn't seem like as big of a shock where, you know, these news hosts, in order to feel some sense of empathy, are like, wow, it's like it's happening, you know, in my hometown. Like, yeah, it's fucked, but it's fucked in the same way a lot of wars in Europe and everywhere else are fucked. And I don't identify with Ukrainians like they're my neighbors. I identify with them like they're in Ukraine. And I still feel sorry for them and relate to them, but I don't need to think of them as white to care about them. And it's interesting because we don't think of them that way. Like, And nobody did as well. This is the thing. Like, you asked an average person six months ago where the fuck Ukraine is and, like, to talk about Ukraine's politics, like, they wouldn't know shit. Like, they don't... No one actually knows what they're talking about. Yeah, it just seems like when white people see other, you know, lighter-skinned folk in the context of war, their brain just short-circuits. Yeah. like They can't compute. It's so interesting how white people everywhere have kind of just immediately absorbed Ukraine into whiteness. And I'm just like... I don't think about Ukraine as, like, 
a country similar to America or like London or Australia. I think of it as a country similar to like Russia and like Uzbekistan, like because that's the corner of the world that it's in. I mean, we've talked before about whiteness just being a concept and it absorbs people all the time. Like Irish people weren't considered white and now they are. And like even now in like Australia, like Italian and Greek people are often considered white when they didn't used to be and they were like experiencing racism. And now I feel like not long ago, I feel like a lot of white Anglo people would not have considered Ukrainians as the same as them. The same way that like people don't consider Russians as white, even though they like have similar ethno populations. But now they do because it's just like the homogenizing of whiteness. It's just so weird. The whole, all the politics are weird. And just to go back to this idea of the big other, which I think, you know, once you start looking at the media this way, it becomes so apparent. This, you know, absorbing or subsumption of whiteness becomes like, it, it's always to serve whatever the new big other is. It's always, you know, transient. It's always changing. But these movements always serve that narrative, whatever it may be. And speaking of narratives around whiteness and big others, something really interesting happened a few days ago in direct relation to the Ukraine-Russia invasion and also in relation to the way our entire media approach is changing because of this invasion. So the ABC had a Q&A panel where they were discussing Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The panel was obviously largely sympathetic to Ukrainian refugees. They were discussing how you know awful it is that Russia is invading. They were sympathizing with civilians that have died. They were talking about how like we should always respect the sovereignty of like different countries and that like they're kind of is never really any, a good excuse for war and violence. And like their points, I like for the most part agreed with. But, like, what was really fascinating to me is how, like, these same arguments are ones that we employ when we're pro-Palestine, but they're dismissed in the Palestinian conflict. Like, these are arguments, the same arguments we're hearing against a Russian invasion of Ukraine are the same arguments people make against Israeli apartheid of Palestine. And, like, it's so mind-boggling how that doesn't seem to translate for people. Like, they don't understand it in the concept of Palestine and Israel but they do understand it in the context of Ukraine and Russia. And like in the vein of comparisons, there was an audience member in the most recent Q&A episode that asked a pro-Russia question. Like they kind of got up and they were like, well, Ukraine like was responsible for the death of these Russians whenever blah, blah, blah. Like I don't see you sympathizing with them. Like as somebody who supports Putin's regime, because I think that he is, you know, just getting back at them for what they did to us. Like you never sympathize with us and now you sympathize with Ukraine. Like, yes, problematic question. Obviously nobody should be pro-Putin, but they kicked him out. Like they actually just like the host said, uh, I don't support violence. And by supporting Russia's regime, you are advocating for violence. Therefore, I want you to leave. Like this is, you are supporting like a, a power that is like subjugating people and people are dying. And he said, says that he's like, there are people in this audience, you know, that are distressed by people dying and you're going to be up here like saying that you don't care and you think that's fair, leave. Actually, let's just show you. Sasha, people here have been talking about family who are suffering and people are dying. And I understand you wanted to ask your question about is there some reasoning for this? But you supported what's happening, hearing that people are dying. And can I just say I'm just not comfortable with you being here? Could, could you please leave? I've, I've been... It's really... No, Sasha, I'm sorry. You, you, you can ask a question. You can ask a question, but we cannot advocate violence. I should have asked you to leave then. It's been playing on my mind. 
and I'm sorry, but I have to ask you to leave, please. And I'm just so fascinated and frustrated by that interaction. Yeah, I mean, firstly, I just think it was so strange that he was kicked out because it seems like this is like the whole point of the format. You know, someone asked a sort of a shitty question and then everyone reacted, you know, promptly and said, that's a shitty question. You're wrong for these reasons. And then this exists as a public example of like why you shouldn't have this opinion. Exactly. Yeah, like I'm definitely not the first person to say, oh, you need to examine both sides of the argument, you know, but like we're not going to start having alt-right people on this show to like destroy their opinions with fact and logic because I, I really, I don't believe that. But I think in the context of Q&A, like it's designed for these complications and it seems so strange. And as we'll get to, maybe so hypocritical that this person asking this fucked question was kicked out for making everyone so uncomfortable when the show seemed, you know, able to deal with that very readily. Yeah, that's what surprised me because the panelists had like strong opinions and they were totally equipped to debunk what he said, like And I feel like it should have been dealt in a way where this guy gets up, he asks his, like, pro-Russia question that is obviously, like, just misleading, misinformed, problematic. And, like, it's their role as, like, experts and journalists on the panel to be like, you're incorrect, you're factually incorrect for these reasons, we don't support what you've said because you're actually diminishing the lives of X, Y, Z, and by holding that opinion, you effectively uphold these other opinions that we don't agree with. And when they say that, the people who are watching that might have sympathised with his argument would be like, oh, and they would have to reflect on their problematic opinion. And it actually would have created like a good change in people. I feel like they actually had potential there to shut that shit down in like a really productive way. But I feel like sending him off, it just made him a martyr. I feel like it was just like now all the pro-Russians people are going to be like, look, they censored us. It just seems so odd. It seems like silly. But also just on top of that, it's so shocking to me that they would do that because in the past, people have done the same thing with pro-Israel and they have always entertained that. And it has always been approached as like a two-sided issue. Like, oh, but, you know, what about Israel's side of the story? What about them? And I just find it so fascinating that people won't tolerate that with a Russian and Ukraine conversation because there is an understanding of a power imbalance between these two countries and between a dictator and civilians. Like, there is obviously a power imbalance there and who was being hurt. So we're not going to, you know, entertain ideas of civilians potentially deserving to be killed. But they do that with Palestine and Israel. Like, I make it make sense. It's really interesting because not that long ago, Q&A did a panel about Israel and Palestine back when Israel was in the news for bombing Gaza. Like, I think it was like mid last year. And then that panel received so many complaints and they actually were investigated by a third party for being too pro-Palestine. And like the Australian-Israeli group essentially argued that they weren't given a chance to tell their side of the story because one of the panelists was Palestinian and another panelist works with Palestinians and they were like well you know you're overrepresenting Palestinians you're not letting us talk about our side of the story and like ABC was fully investigated for that like it was like an issue like they were treated like they had like lost their editorial integrity or like done something wrong and I find that so shocking because I fucking you know assure you that ABC is not going to be investigated for this Russia episode for being too pro-Ukraine because it's not a sides situation there isn't a you're either on Ukraine side or Russia side it's actually a discussion on the fact that like civilians are dying in a war they didn't sign up for and in a war they have nothing to do with like that's what their conversation is about it's about like political power and who fucking gets hurt in the process. And it's just so, it angers me and it's so hypocritical of Q&A to like 
crack it with this Russian kid and then like not say anything about pro-Israeli commenters and to like allow Palestinian people to be treated like there are two sides of their story. Like they allow Palestinian people to be interrogated in a way that they would never accept Ukrainian refugees to be interrogated as. It frustrates me because these double standards don't make sense. And I think it just goes to show how fake I think a lot of the commentary is around Ukraine. Like I think people want to be seen as in the right and obviously we're all anti-war so it's pretty easy to do that but I'm like I'll believe you're anti-war when you support Palestine until then none of any honestly I feel like it's the ultimate test like I meet people and they talk about politics and they sound progressive all I need to do is find out their stance on Palestine and then I'll know if I can trust them and I feel like and this is not even specific to like the host of 2 and 8 because I don't know what his stance on Palestine is He could be pro-Palestine, like, I don't care. The point is, like, the fact that that as a show, as, like, a construction of media, shut down this instance of pro-state propaganda, but they won't do that with Israel. That's really, like, telling, I think, to me as a show and as even where people are at right now and how comfortable they are calling Russia out because, of course, we all hate Russia, but, like, when it comes to Israel, it's considered, like, more controversial and that's when there's just no principle. There's just no principle to an integrity to your politics. And again, it just all seems to serve whatever the current narrative is. Like, I think probably, like, all, like, no one should be kicked out for those, you know, like, if you're not inciting violence, like, you know, in the most, like, direct form, then I think the show should be equipped to, like, critique these arguments. Uh, It just seems so, like, strange and, you know curious i guess it's so funny because like this this week was the time yeah well it's like they would never kick somebody out for like being racist but they will for being pro-russia because it's more offensive to like question the integrity of ukrainian people than it is to like hate brown people and so you can kind of see this flow like first we start like as a society first we like are outraged and we start to criticize blatant racism like those news articles and then now we're criticizing Maybe more subtle, but still obvious Russia propaganda with this kid in Q&A. But what really I feel like has kind of shown how much the conversation around race has changed literally in the span of a week is an article that I read this morning by Sisanke Msimang. She's an activist and a writer. And she wrote an opinion piece for The Guardian about the racial politics around Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins. And look, I have been waiting for someone to write this. I have been waiting for this because I think Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, I mean, two white women that are really at the forefront of women's rights movements, specifically around fighting like rape culture and uplifting sexual assault survivors, especially for Grace Tame of any genders. Like I think she's like an advocate in the most genuine sense as well. Like she, I don't think she's very specific to like one group of people. She just is anti-sexual assault. But these two women are really like, they're on magazine covers right now. Like they are the moment. They are like iconic. It's a little bit, I don't think they mean to be, but they definitely are treated as a bit of a slay queen feminism situation, which is not their fault. But I feel like both Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame have really been put on this huge pedestal right now. And, you know, they've turned them into national treasures. I feel like they've transcended their role as, like, advocates or activists, and they've become the face of modern-day Australian feminism. It's sort of like the Australian Me Too movement in a way. Like they've yeah, very the, much the face so. Of, of this thing, this narrative that has happened in, you know, the past two years. Yeah, yeah. exactly. It's been... 
it's been a huge change, especially like, I mean, the most recent kind of news stories with Grace Tame were about how she basically refused to play nice with Scott Morrison and refused to like entertain him with a placid smile and be kind to him. And there were like a million think pieces and like a lot of solidarity and support for her because a lot of white women were like, fuck you to all these old creepy white men. Like, we don't owe you pretty. We don't owe you kind. We don't owe you coy. We don't owe you sweetness. Like, women can be angry and women don't have to play nice in order to be respected. And women can be angry because why can't they? Like, it is tra- it's traumatizing to be a woman. It's traumatizing to experience sexual assault. And like, why do these advocates... And these people have survived, you know, horrific situations. Why do they have to play this game, you know? Which I think is all true and they're all important conversations. And I think everything that Grace Tame is, like, doing is important work and I admire her. But I find, like, some of these conversations really hypocritical. And I have thought this for a while, especially around these rage conversations with Grace Tame. Because I was just thinking black and brown women, especially black women, are so villainized for righteous anger. Like so villainized and ostracized. But when that anger comes from like the likes of Grace Tame, it's revolutionizing. It's like completely changed the way that we approach politics and the way like, and things that we expect from young women. And I remember thinking that in the moment. And now Sisanke Umsamang has written her article. A fantastic article. Amazing article. It's so good. It's a must read. I will obviously put it in the sources. Essentially calling this out in a way that I think was also really delicate. Like I think it's a really like controversial opinion to have, which is why I've never written about it because I don't think I could write about it in a way that wouldn't get me digitally fucking lynched by all these like white feminists. Like I don't, I don't know how I would approach yeah, this without precisely. causing problems. I mean, Higgins and Tame, obviously brave, but also this article is immensely brave. This article is, yeah, is brave because it's saying what a lot of us are thinking, but we're just, if you're like me, like I just, I just can't do with the backlash that would come with writing something like this. I'm going to read you a snippet of her article that kind of, I guess, gets to the point of what she's saying. I have yet to see black women's anger greeted with the same kind of public solidarity or sympathy. And yet, black women have been expressing anger for years as they address racist police and education systems, as they try to create opportunities for themselves and face the double burden of sexism and racism. Our anger is not seen as strategic or tactical or worthy of analysis. Instead, it is racialized, seen to spring from our nature. Like so many negative emotions, anger is seen as an essentialized trait, part of the insidious racist idea that black people feel and white people think. And I, especially that last line, I really resonated with that because I noticed that with Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame, like her anger was seen as powerful and rebellious even, you know, like a threat to the patriarchy. And I find that so frustrating in a way, even though like I don't have an issue with her, but just the response to it is frustrating because this has been going on for a long time. And I feel like the same women that support Grace Tame and her anger and revel in it would turn around and strike down their black and brown female peers for the same anger because that doesn't benefit them. I'll read you a little bit more of this article. Instead, over the past year, I have watched the exaltation of angry white women who have finally understood the limits of respectability. I have watched as a narrative emerges of white women as fighters, as eloquent challengers of the status quo, as upholders of the feminist legacy with little to no reference to black women who have been doing this for years. As with so many other issues, the racial double standard is stark. 
What is worth pointing out, though, is that Tame's elevation to heroine status is indicative of a women's rights movement that can still only hear hard truths when they are delivered by white women. Her ascendancy is also indicative of a media environment that creates darlings based on its own image of itself. Last year, Morrison's admission that his wife had asked him to consider Higgins' story through the eyes of a father sparked media outrage, and I found that hypocritical. I found it hypocritical too, because it's, again, it's a lot of the same white women that identify with Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins' anger that will also turn around and like venomously shun anger from mostly black but also brown women. I've seen it firsthand. Like when Grace Tame challenges the status quo, she is a hero and a pioneer. But when I or somebody else who isn't white does it, we're divisive, we're troublemakers. You know, then all the tone policing comes out and the white feminism comes out. You know, and this is not saying that Grace Tame is a white feminist. I'm just saying this is the media around her. I also just find all of this so interesting. I've thought about this for a while because I feel like there is no critique of like Brittany Higgins' politics as a person. I don't know what her individual politics were before she became known for um, anti-rape advocacy, right? And it's because, well, according to the ideas around her and the support of her, challenging rape culture is apolitical. I don't need to know whether she's left or right wing. It doesn't matter because what she's advocating for, it doesn't matter in regards to that. It's a, it's a bipartisan issue. You know, it transcends conventional politics. You know, this isn't something that like, like this isn't a voting issue. You know, of course, like, oh, we're all against sexual assault. How could that be a political issue exactly and before britney higgins was known to us and she was i mean look it's the whole situation is fucked because the reason she's in the limelight is because somebody raped her she had to experience a trauma but something that i think people don't really talk about or don't even know is like what her politics are on an individual level because like britney higgins was like a liberal staffer she was like working for a party that actively had a hand in upholding rape culture and oppressing other non-white women like the liberal party actively oppresses non-white women especially poor non-white women. And I just find it frustrating at times how like people don't bring that into account when we like put Brittany Higgins as the face of modern day feminism because it immediately excludes like all the women that previously her work oppressed, right? And that's not to say, because I feel like I have to kind of put a disclaimer. I'm not calling out Brittany Higgins. I'm not saying she's a racist. I, I don't know what her politics are. I'm just saying... Nobody has an interest in talking about racial politics around Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins. And those of us who may have those conversations have had them privately because we know we're going to get fucking crucified for like daring to criticize the white feminism around Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame because people will see that as us like tearing down these women that are doing good things for society. And also one thing I sort of got from Msameng's article, and I want to see if like you got a similar vibe as well, but it's almost like that white women are multifaceted. Like they can have like this typical polite, delicate side, for example, but then it becomes shocking and surprising when they uh, start challenging, you know, respectability politics and they, and and it becomes like this revolutionary attitude and it shows how there's only like so many different sides. Like they're so complex and multifaceted. Whereas when women of color act in similar ways, it's then seen as merely portraying their singular nature. You know, it's like they're uh, one-minded, they're angry black women, you know, that whole stereotype. But then white women, so many different ways of acting, so complex, so multifaceted, and they can sort of shift between them. And that's what becomes radical. Well, I was going to say, that's why Grace Tame's anger is powerful, because she's 
allowed to not be angry. Like, because she can be a regular personality, a regular woman that people just relate to on like a normal level. Like she went to a Christian private school. She's a white woman in Australia. There is, that's just relatable to like majority of her audience. And I think part of the reason that white women love her anger is because they as white women can be so many things and anger is just one of the things they can publicly feel. It's a privilege that I don't think a lot of white women realize they have. Like, for your anger to be seen as valid because all of you is valid is, like, something that women of color are not afforded. And when we speak about issues like this, we're immediately shut down. And, look, I know people are going to say, oh, Brittany Higgins and Grace Tame obviously get a lot of vitriol. They do. I'm, again, not denying that. What they're doing is brave and they are powerful women and they are creating change and they face a lot of vitriol and backlash and sexism for what they do. But it's important to note that they can do it, though. And that's what this article points out is like it's not coming for Brittany Higgins or Grace Tame, but it's saying the reason they were able to get this far is because they are white women and we're at a stage in society where we'll listen to white women and that these truths have to come from white women for the world to care because black and brown women have been saying the same thing for a very long time and they are just as radical and just as powerful and just as you know charismatic people but they will never be afforded the platform and the widespread public solidarity that these two women have purely based on race and it's like a conversation that i do not think we would be having pre-russia ukraine And you're probably like, what's the link there? But there is, because I think that was such a taboo conversation around race literally weeks ago. But the Ukraine-Russia situation has really opened up a space to be critical of media because now, like, they can't admit that racism is a problem. Like, it's kind of unveiled this huge racism issue in more obvious ways, like with the coverage we talked about before. But I feel like step by step, we're actually getting to, like, really important and, like, kind of radical conversations about race now. Like, with this Guardian op-ed, like, this would not have been published a few weeks ago. It would have been too controversial. But We're now at a place where we can be super critical of race in every form because of the media, because of the racist media around Ukraine. It's just really interesting, like how unexpected, you know, what an unexpected consequence of Russia invading Ukraine, just like in a local Australian media lens, that it is only because of that, that now, you know, like years, like at least a year after Brittany Higgins made headlines, we are able to have a conversation about her and Grace Tame's whiteness. It's just, I think that's like so fascinating. Yeah. And I think it's sort of like maybe opening people's eyes as to what is political. Cause I feel like if you're listening to this podcast, then you're well aware of this idea that, that everything is political. But I think, you know, in terms of mainstream discourse, what we normally see on like, you know, Guardian op-eds, it's like, you have the political space and then you have like, you know, everyday life and they're sort of separated. And I think- what the the Tame and, and Higgins conversation shows is that it seems we can only talk about political issues like sexual assault when they become deemed as non-political. They Like, sexual assault is an apolitical issue. It, it's almost like it has to transcend politics, aka it starts affecting liberals too. It's only until then that we can actually start discussing this issue because it's become, like, bipartisan or nonpartisan. And I feel like even then a keyword for that is, like, it's become an issue that affects white people Mm. in a way that we can talk about it now. Because, like, climate change is a good example of that, you know? Like, people of colour are 
you're disproportionately affected by climate change. Like Pacifica communities have been obviously talking about climate change for a long time because their islands are literally sinking. And like now suddenly a lot of people like in like wealthier, whiter nations care about climate change because now they're feeling the effects of it when this has been an issue for a long time. Like, and now climate change is no longer considered a political issue because now it affects all of us, even the privileged. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, that's why only a white woman could be the face of this issue right now, because if it was a woman of color, then it's making this issue political, which of course it is political, but in the eyes of so many, it's an apolitical issue. And then if you racialize it, then you're politicizing it and then it becomes ideological and like this whole mess. Yeah. That's the issue. That's the issue. Well, it's just, it comes back to the idea of whiteness as default and whiteness as being apolitical. To be white is to be apolitical. And to be not white is inherently to be political. You cannot exist in a black or brown body and be apolitical because you are inherently politicized because we live in a white supremacist society. So to kind of end this episode, just to... To summarize this journey. Yeah, I think like there's been a lot of really interesting um, conversations around race and Ukraine, but specifically around whiteness as a default around how everybody else is the other, everybody else is politicized, everybody else is barbaric or uncivilized or just an angry black woman or just whatever. And feelings and human rights violations and sexual assault and all kinds of other issues only matter when they affect white women, but specifically like white women and children as well. Like even with Ukraine, the real, like, when we're talking about refugees, we're talking about white women and white children, especially all these conversations around, like, oh, but these blonde, blue-eyed children. Like, this idea of, like, these issues aren't issues until they hurt vulnerable white people. And now we can talk about them not as political issues, but as, like, human rights. Just interesting. I just find it interesting. Cool. Well, thanks for listening. I think now's a good time to talk about our sponsors for the episode, which is you, our lovely, lovely listeners. Uh, specifically, we'd like to thank Johnny, Sarah Wallace, Pia, Sal Carcano, Liz, and Katie. So thank you so, so much. If you thought our discussion today was interesting or thought-provoking or something you learned from, please consider donating to our Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Saliha. And if signing up isn't your thing, you can also donate to our PayPal link at paypal.me forward slash Saliha to support future episodes. Both the PayPal and Patreon links are in my Instagram bio, so check them out over there at Saliha Official. And give me a follow if you liked today's episode. And follow my Instagram at mitches.miscellanea for discussions around film, books, and music. Also, if you have any comments or suggestions or you want to add to the discussion, you can DM me or Mitch on Instagram, or you can email us at here's the thing though podcast at gmail.com and if you do please include your name pronouns and any other important info okay cool bye bye